Last time we got as far as verse 20, so um, this week we're going to go from verses 21 and following. So we're in Isaiah 37 and verse 21. Um, Let me just pray as we get started and then we'll do a recap and we'll kick off, okay? Father God, we pray that as we study your word today that you would bless our time. Uh, that this, this, your word, that you sovereignly ordained would be preached this week, Lord, that it would accomplish your will. Pray that I wouldn't tarnish or misrepresent your word, Lord, but that your word would go forth truthfully and accurately and speak, and that you would speak through it, Lord, and that you would change us, change our hearts, change our lives. Amen. Okay, so here's our context. We've got a lot of context uh, background here. What is going on? What has been going on? The, the nation of Judah, the, kingdom, the nation of Israel split into two kingdoms, Judah in the south and Israel in the north. It's a split kingdom. Israel has long ago been, been taken over by the Assyrians. And the southern kingdom of Judah looks like it's about to fall as well. The king is Hezekiah. His father, Ahaz, had compromised previously and placed his trust in the Assyrians and in the Assyrians' armies and in the Assyrian might and power. And he trusted in that powerful nation. And as a result of that, God had judged Judah through the Assyrians. The attack of the Assyrians was God's judgment upon them. And the Assyrians had come in to the kingdom, uh, to the nation of Judah and taken out 46 fortified cities and now they stand on the brink of Jerusalem. The king of Assyria, Sennacherib, has come with his army and he sent his envoys out and he has specifically told his envoys to tell them, to tell Hezekiah that basically... Don't trust your God. The God of the Bible, the God of Israel, is a God whose name is Yahweh, or in some versions, Jehovah. And Yahweh is is Israel's God, and he says to them, don't trust in Yahweh. Don't trust in your God. Why? Why should he not trust in him? Because he didn't help Israel in the north. And he didn't help all these other nations, and their gods didn't help them, and nobody helped them. We are the all-conquering nation. And Assyria was the superpower of the day. They had conquered all of the region, and Hezekiah had made the same mistake as his father, who trusted in Assyria, except Hezekiah now trusted in Egypt, and now the Egyptian armies have been destroyed as well. And so what we saw the last couple of weeks in chapter 37 is that Hezekiah has finally repented. And when he sees that Jerusalem is about to fall, he does what his father should have done. He goes to the temple and he cries out to God. That's what anybody should do when they're desperate, is go to the place of God and cry out to God. That's the right thing to do. And Hezekiah cried out to God, he cried out to Yahweh, and he placed his trust in him. And as we saw, there is a prayer of repentance. And when, uh, when we finished last time, we got as far as verse 20, which was the end of the prayer of deliverance. And boy, was it a prayer. Um, really, really good prayer. And it emphasized how he was going to trust in God. He was going to trust in Yahweh. How Yahweh was mightiful, uh, was mighty. How Yahweh was creator of heaven and earth. How Yahweh was above all other kings, above all other gods, above the Assyrians. And he cries out to God to help them, but specifically that God's name would be glorified in the process. So as a result of Hezekiah's prayer, him crying out to God for help, we pick up in verse 21. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria. Right. 
Let's pick up what's going on in verse 21. Isaiah the prophet is sent by God with a message to Hezekiah. Why is he sent to Hezekiah? We're specifically told. Because Hezekiah prayed to him about Sennacherib. Now we've seen multiple times in this book that God is using the Assyrian army to judge Judah. He's using the Assyrian army for his purposes. So God has allowed Sennacherib to come to the brink of Jerusalem. And as a result of God allowing that, Hezekiah has now cried out. And now God can step in. So often people ask, why does this stuff happen? Why does this bad stuff happen? Why has God allowed this? And why God allowed that? And so often the answer, not always, but so often, the answer is, is that when things go well, we don't talk to God. When things go well, we ignore God. And what's happened here is because Sennacherib has come to the brink of Jerusalem, Hezekiah has finally turned to God. He's finally trusted in God. And so Isaiah says, well, here's a message from God for you, Hezekiah, and I've come to you to bring you this message because you prayed about this situation. And so the two things to learn from this. Firstly, we need to understand, as I've said, that God allows stuff to happen so that we would cry out to him. But secondly, if we don't cry out to him, then why would we expect God to act? We have to cry out to God. Isaiah says, you've cried out concerning Sennacherib, so now I've got a message for you. Now there's a response. God is responding, and we're going to see what the response is in a minute, but God is responding because Hezekiah prayed. We have to pray. When we're in trials, when we're in trouble, when we're in difficulties... We cry out to God. That's what we do. That, as Christians, should be in our DNA as believers. That we are the ones who pray. We are the ones who cry out. This is going on, let's pray. That's going on, let's pray. Had an answer to pray, to prayer, let's pray and thank God for the answer to prayer. Now there's another problem, let's pray. And we pray, pray, pray. And we saw the model for prayer last week. It was a really good kind of prayer. If you want to go, if you weren't here, go back and, and listen to that. But we had this model of prayer where Sennacherib's, um, sorry, Hezekiah spent most of his prayer declaring who God was. We need to acknowledge the situation that we're in. Our pain, our struggles, our sadness, our misery, our, 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 our fears, whatever we're dealing with, we acknowledge it. We bring it to God, but we behold who God is. And we recognize that we are praying to him because he is creator God. He is powerful. He can change circumstances if he chooses. And so we cry out to him. And so we had that ABC there in the lament and the prayer of Hezekiah. And so because Hezekiah has prayed, Isaiah has come and he has a message. And here is the message, verse 22. This is the word that Yahweh has spoken concerning him. She despises you. She scorns you. The virgin daughter of Zion, she wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Now, first thing note to this word is two. This is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. So the message, though it's given to Hezekiah, is about what's going to happen to Sennacherib. Now, you've got to understand what's going on here, okay? Assyria is the superpower. Sennacherib is the king of the superpower. And Judah and Hezekiah is just like a nothing. It would be like Rhode Island trying to take on the entirety of the other 49 states. Right? It would, it, it's just they, they're just vastly outnumbered in might, in power, in everything. It's just ridiculous. Why on earth do you think that you would be able to do anything? So God's message to Hezekiah is saying, look, the odds are completely stacked against you, but you chose to trust in me because you said I was more mighty. I'm going to show you what I can do. So the message is about what's going to happen to Sennacherib. And so she despises you. 
She despises Sennacherib. She scorns you, that's Sennacherib. Who is this she? The virgin daughter of Zion. That is an expression of the inhabitants of Jerusalem. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. So it's as if Jerusalem, the city, has children. That means the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And the reference here to um, them being the virgin daughter is simply that they won't be violated. That here they are, they look like they're about to be torn to pieces, essentially. And he says, no, no, that's not going to happen. The inhabitants of Jerusalem are going to scorn you. Verse 23. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. This has been absolutely clear for the last chapter and a half. Sennacherib is mocking God. It is God that he is being blasphemous towards. It is God he is saying he's, he's been mocking and reviling. He said, don't trust in Yahweh. What are you trusting in your Jewish God for? Why would you trust in him? Trust in me. Come to me. I'll give you land. I'll give you a place to live. I'll give you prosperity. I'll give you all of these things that you want. As long as you don't trust your God. And humanly speaking, again, it's like Rhode Island taking on the other 49 states. There is no chance of victory, humanly speaking. And he's saying, I don't have to give you anything. I can wipe you out, but I'm going to give you land and prosperity. I'll give you all of those things. Just don't trust in your God. And so the message to him is what we've seen clearly all along, which is it's God who he's had an issue with. Not Judah, not Hezekiah. He's had an issue with God, the Holy One of Israel. And, and so, in uh, verse 25, uh, 24, By your servants you have mocked the Lord, and you have said, With my many chariots I have gone up to the heights of the mountains, to the far recesses of Lebanon, to cut down its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses, to come to its remotest height, its most fruitful forest. I dug wells and drank waters to dry up with my, the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. Now, I want you to understand what's going on here. There's two separate things, but they come under one heading. The bragging of Sennacherib. He was boastful. He was like, ah, <laughs> you know, we're, we're strong, we're mighty, we can accomplish things. Don't trust in your God because we're the mighty one. And here's what he was back bragging about. He says, with his chariots, many chariots, i.e. lots of forces, it'd be like the equivalent of bragging about a big army. Imagine if, uh, imagine if I don't know, some small South American country, imagine if Guatemala or Nicaragua said, we're going to declare war against America. You'd be like, what? Have you, have you seen the American forces, the armies, you know, the Marines? Do you not know the force that we have? That's what Sennacherib's like. He's the guy with all the armies. And he's saying, I've got many chariots. I've gone to the heights of the mountains, to the far recesses of Lebanon, cut down its tallest cedars and its choicest cypresses uh, to come to its remotest height in its most fruitful forest. So basically he says, I'm the most mighty and I've used my might to chop down trees. You're like, what? Surely you'd say, I've got many chariots and I'm mighty, so I've conquered other nations? No, no, no. I chopped down trees. What's he talking about? He's basically used his might to get the best of trees because it's the cedars of Lebanon that have been part of the, one of the bit players, as it were, of the entire book of Isaiah because they were used to make the idols that were worshipped. Remember, these foreign nations trusted in their own gods. Their own gods were real, what we would call demons. But they made images so they had something to worship. And they would use stone and they would use wood. And one way of worshipping their gods would be to say, well, we're not going to use just cheap, nasty, leftover wood. We're going to use the best wood that we have to make our idols. And we understand. Pardon me. We understand that principle, surely. The first fruits Israel had to observe, didn't they? They had to give the, give the first fruits and the best of their, of, their, of their harvest to God. 
So we understand the principle. And so what he's saying is, we had the strongest army, so we got the best trees to make the best possible idols to worship our gods. Because the implication is that the gods are the ones who've enabled them to have the mighty armies. That's how they equate things. Why is it that you are so mighty, O king of Assyria? Why is it that your army conquers all the other armies? He doesn't say, well, we had a really good economic policy a few decades ago, and blah, blah, blah. No, it's like, well, our gods have given us victory. And so he's used the might, which he perceives as coming from the gods, to make idols, images of those gods to worship, and to get the very best of trees. And that's what's going on there. In verse 25, the reference to wells and waters means provision. But I think also as well to dry up with the sole of my feet all the streams of Egypt, which is probably a reference to the Nile. And the idea is that the Nile would be no issue to him. We're able to deal with the Nile. We can, we can gather our water. We can, and again, the Nile was a very fruitful place. The occasional floods of the Nile would mean that there would be very um, fertile land alongside it. And uh, that's why there was the great nation of Egypt through history. And they were, uh, it was land that he had taken at this point. And so he's saying, I'm able to have life from the water, from the conquering, again, linking with conquering. But what is fascinating to me is the words by which it speaks of him the words it attributes to him, of his, his belittling of the threat of the Nile. He says, with the, I dry up with the sole of my feet the streams of Egypt. Do we know anybody who had dealings with Egyptian waters and bare feet and walking on their feet? I'm thinking of Moses and the Exodus and the parting of the Red Sea. In other words, he's declaring a might in a realm that is God's realm. And it's just adding to the picture of his blasphemy and his boasting. So now we're in verse 26. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass that you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins while their inhabitants, shorn of strength, are dismayed and confounded and have become like plants of the field, like tender grass, like grass on the housetops, blighted before it is grown. What is he saying in these verses? This is astounding. We've just had Sennacherib say, mighty chariots, many chariots, able to get the best trees to worship the gods. That is the link between him saying, I'm mighty and I have mighty gods. He's linking the two things together. Now what is being said in verse 26? God says, you only had victory because I gave you victory. I need you to understand that, folks. Why why is Jeff Bezos the world's richest man, allegedly. We don't know. Maybe by money in secret. I don't know. But why, why is Elon Musk the second richest man officially in the world? Is it because they're particularly clever or what have you? No, it's because God ordained it. He allowed it. They are recipients of the blessings of God. And they, therefore, more than anyone else, have a duty to bow the knee before him and will be held accountable if they don't. God ordains leaders and rulers and mighty people and he gives blessings and he gives victory and every blessing of every person's life that they have is a gift from God. People today, outside the church, they're so quick to blame God or there can't be a God because I've gotten sick or there can't be a God because this tragedy happened or there can't be a God because, because you know this didn't work out for me. And they, they see it didn't work out for them with the eyes that God gave them. They, they hear the news with the ears that God gave them. And they speak their, their criticism with the mouth that he gave them. They are examples of the goodness and the blessing of God. You know? It's like when you've got a small child. And there is a small child. And mothers will understand this. You give painful birth to those little blobs and they come out screaming and demanding 
and they continue to scream and demand, and they're fed and they're clothed and they're kept warm and they're looked after and they're nursed when they're crying in the middle of the night and they get their toys and they get their gifts and they get everything. But if they don't get the one thing that they want at that one particular moment, and the same thing so often goes on even into the teenage years, it just takes a certain different form. The blessings continue, the gifts continue, the goodness continues, and the frustration of not having the things that they do want become the entire focus. And that's what people do. This is the sin nature of us all, is that we are all guilty of that, in that we are so quick to criticize and complain to God when we don't get the things that we want, when the blessings that he gives us daily are so rich and huge. And so it is that everybody who has received blessings has received them from God. And Sennacherib was under the illusion that he was blessed by his God. He was under the illusion that he would accomplish what he accomplished through his military might. But God says, "Uh uh-uh. I had a purpose. I had a plan. I determined it from long ago. I planned it from days of old that you would destroy these cities. Sennacherib thought that he was mightier and his gods were mightier than the God of Judah. He thought that because he conquered their cities. Their fortified cities were all falling. So surely he was stronger than they were. And God says, no, I let you do that. I let you do that. That was part of my plan. I allowed you to do that terrible thing because I'm going to use your evil for the good of Hezekiah and the good of Judah. As we're seeing. God allows bad people to do bad things for his glory. We're told specifically in the Bible that Pharaoh had his heart hardened so that God would raise the stakes and raise the stakes and raise the stakes so that the the incident of the parting of the Red Sea, the plagues of Egypt and the Passover would never be forgotten and that God would be glorified through that. And that means that when things happen that you don't like, when leaders that you don't like become leaders, when situations you don't like happen, that God is still sovereign even then. He's still in charge. He's still in control. And so the inhabitants are dismayed and confounded, and they're given this, he's given this easy victory. But yet God was in control all along. And so verse 28 says this, and I think that really this verse is incredibly powerful, and it sums up so much of what we're talking about here. He says, I know you're sitting down, and I know you're going out, And I know you're coming in and you're raging against me. If you take the first half of this verse, it sounds like the sort of devotional verse that a Christian might, might, you know, might put on their wall. I know you're sitting down. I know you're going out. I know you're coming in. And we go, and we as Christians, we go, oh, that's just so encouraging to know that God's looking out for me and he cares for me. And that is true. He does know you're sitting down. He does know you're coming out. He does know everything about you. Uh, You're going out and you're coming in. In other words, whatever you are, whatever you're doing, God knows. He's watching you. He sees you. He sees your actions. He sees your deeds. And he sees your heart. And for Christians, that should be an encouragement because God has our back. But that's not what this verse is saying. This verse is not a message to the believer to be an encouragement. It's a message to the unbeliever as a warning. And I see you're raging against me. What psalm does this make us think of immediately, hopefully? Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? That's the raging. The nations rage against Yahweh and against his anointed one. We don't want to be shackled by him. We don't want to be 
tied up by him, him and his rules and regulations and his stupid Bible and all of these do this and do not do that. I don't want to be tied up. Let's get rid of God. It's never gone well for anybody. Didn't go well for Sennacherib. And it won't go well for anybody else. You know, I often think about this. I often think, you know, if I was going to meet with with a kind of secular leader, if I got to, if I bumped into Gavin Newsom one day, what Bible verse would I give him? Would it be John three sixteen? I think this might might be a good one. You know, to any to any person in power, to a political leader, to a religious leader of another faith, perhaps, to um, to somebody who's just wealthy and powerful, someone with lots of businesses and lots of people underneath his or her power. This is, this is just a magnificent verse. Hey, God says this to you. I know you're sitting down. I know you're going out. I know you're coming in. And you're raging against me. You're either for God or you're against God. There is no neutral ground. And because you have raged against me, verse 29... And your complacency has come to my ears. I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth. And I will turn you back on the way by which you came. This is powerful. Listen, there's so much here. Because you've raged against me, because you've been complacent. Ah, we'll take down Yahweh and Judah. We've taken down every other city. There's only one to go. This This is like someone conquering the 50 states. God, they've got 49 of them, just Rhode Island left, and they've taken all of the land of Rhode Island other than the capital. That's it, there's just one city left, and everything around is gone. Totally complacent, and, 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 and opposed to God, and opposed to God's people. And God says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. A couple of things here. Firstly, we've already had the pro- promise to Hezekiah in the earlier part of the chapter that Sennacherib would go back to his own land and die there. So the bit in the mouth is a reference to horses and he is going to be turned like, like a horse by his rider. God is riding, he's in charge. And he is going to turn him back to his own land. He doesn't get to take Jerusalem. Jerusalem is not going to go down to Sennacherib. But the previous one is this. You don't, the previous example is interesting. You don't put, a, you don't put a, um, a ring or hook in the nose of horses. This is a, a, an allusion, I believe, to Leviathan in the book of Job. And what is significant is that God took the mighty monster, Leviathan, and said, I'll put a hook in your nose. Or he said to Job, can you put a hook in his nose and control him? God could control Leviathan. Now, in the context of the book of Job, Leviathan represents Satan. In other words, whoever the gods are running the show behind the Assyrian might, God is more powerful than those gods. Yahweh is more powerful than those gods. And he can put a hook in the nose of their gods. And so again, like there has been throughout this section, there's the two levels. On on the human level, God is more powerful than the Assyrians, and he will make Sennacherib go back back from where he came from, to his homeland, back to Assyria. And on the supernatural level, in the other spiritual realm, God is more powerful than the demonic realm and demonic beings that empowered Assyria. So that is the message to Sennacherib. He will not take Jerusalem. He will have to go back to his own land. And God will show him that he is the mighty one in response to the rage and the complacency of Sennacherib. Then in verse 30, and this shall be the sign for you. The you here changes from you singular to you plural. This is a a message not to Sennacherib now, but to the people of Judah. This year you shall eat what grows of itself, and in the second year what springs from that. Then in the third year sow and reap and plant vineyards 
and eat their fruit. How's it going for Judah right now? The whole of the country's fallen apart from Jerusalem. They're being surrounded and besieged. They're having a, they're, the threat is surrender or you're gone. So how's it going with the farming? What food are they going to be eating next year? Are they out in the field sowing their seeds? Not happening. And so the prophecy of Isaiah to Judah is you will eat what is naturally growing up. What's left over from last year, seeds that have fallen by the way, you're basically going to be struggling. Whether this is a warning of difficult times or whether it's a prophecy of a miracle that they would have sufficient food in those times or whether it's both, I'm not entirely sure. But it's clear that in the second year, they'll be in the same situation. In other words, the devastation that the Assyrians had, had kind of brought upon the land was such that it would mean that the return to regular growing is not going to be possible even in the following year. But in the third year, so two years later on, they will again be able to sow and plant and have their own food. What had Sennacherib promised them? You will be able to grow your own stuff and have your own vineyards. Look at the land devastated around you. Look at the destruction I've caused. You want to grow your own stuff again? Trust in me. Don't trust in Yahweh. And Yahweh is essentially saying this. I'll give you your land. You can grow your plants. and You'll have prosperity in the land. But you've got to wait two years. This is one of the number one reasons that Christians compromise. is impatience. It's not that we don't believe that God won't come through, it's that we want him to come through now. And it leads us to compromise again and again and again. So, so um, the, Jew, the, 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 the Judahites, the, the, the people of Judah, they are promised that in the third year they will be sowing and reaping and planting vineyards and eating their fruit. And so maybe there's some sowing that goes on in the second year, but they're not, not that they'll be eating of that, but in the third year they will be eating. Verse 31 does what Isaiah does so frequently and shifts from the immediate future to the distant future. What he said in the immediate future is that in the immediate future there will be a restoration of the land. What he says in verse 31 is that there will also be a parallel restoration in the, in the future as well. The surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. That really is the transitionary verse because that verse could describe what's been spoken of in verse 30. They're putting roots downwards and the fruit's going upwards. But it's talking about them, the people, also like the fruit, like the plants, having roots going downward and bearing fruit upward. And so what is true in the physical realm is going to be true in the spiritual realm. And that becomes clear in verse 32. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And again, as Isaiah has spoken of multiple times, ultimately there will be a remnant of believers that will be in Jerusalem. And that seems to be pointing to the end. You could argue that it's speaking of the more immediate future as well, and that he's saying there will be a restoration in Israel both of the physical land and your spiritual well-being as well, and there may well be a good argument for that. I just think that the way that Isaiah has used remnant again and again and again in previous chapters, that I suspect that is pointing to a more distant fulfillment. But either is possible. But the point is clear. Their physical salvation is in the hands of God and their spiritual salvation is in the hands of God. When we have physical circumstances, then we need help for jobs, sickness, persecution, whatever else it is, then we pray to God because he can physically deliver us. When we have spiritual needs, Lord, I need to overcome this sin. Lord, will you save this person? Lord, would you save my soul? Would you, would, you, would you help me, Lord, spiritually? Then again, he is sovereign and we go to him. 
Then we pick up in verse 33. Therefore, kind of a summary coming here. Thus says Yahweh, the Lord, concerning the king of Assyria. He shall not come into the city, or shoot an arrow there, or come before it with a shield, or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come into this city, declares Yahweh. Okay? Sennacherib had taken all the other cities, and he says, I'm going to come, I'm going to take Jerusalem, I'm going to come and siege you. But before he set up siege, he sends the envoys. And the envoys come in and say, hey, last chance, surrender. Don't trust in God. And the message to Hezekiah is this. They're not even going to be able to set up a mound to start the siege. There won't be a single arrow that is fired. There won't even be a shield that's lifted up in defense. Not only will they not be successful in sieging, they won't even be able to start the siege. Now that's a surprise. Because as far as Hezekiah is concerned, okay, here we are in the capital of Rhode Island, tucked away with everybody else against us. We're totally alone and isolated. There is zero chance somehow that we are going to resist these, these, these huge armies that are going to come against us. How, how's that going to happen? And God says, oh, they're not even going to come against you. Not a single shot will be fired, so to speak. Isn't that crazy? I don't suppose that's what Hezekiah was expecting. And that's often how it happens. Sometimes we're like, I don't see how God can do this miracle. This miracle, he did, for this to happen, God would have to do this miracle. And God says, actually, no, I'm going to do this thing over here instead. And so he does it a completely different way. And so... Verse 35, for I will defend the city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. We've seen again and again, going back to his father Ahaz, and also here for Hezekiah, that God saying he will protect Jerusalem is because of the Davidic covenant. Because of the Davidic covenant. God made promises to Israel and he will keep his promises. That's why it's for his name's sake as much as for David's sake. He made promises to David that he would keep. And if Sennacherib is successful, then that would hinder the promises of David. And God would look bad. And he says, for the sake of my name and my reputation, that people will know that I am God and that I keep my promises to my servants. This won't happen. And then we come to the end. The end of the chapter, the end of the story. For now, anyway. And this is what God did. And the angel of Yahweh went down and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, there were all, uh, these were all dead bodies. I want you just to just take a moment. First of all, we know historically that this happened. There is a Greek historian... Um, called uh, Herodotus, Herodotus, I believe. Herodotus, I think that's how you pronounce it. And Herodotus tells of the history from researching the history of the Assyrians that there was this mass death that happened. And he, interestingly enough, blamed it on what we today would call the bubonic plague that was spread by mice. The way Herodotus tells it and of course, he's getting this from the Assyrians, right? That the mice came into the camp and chewed off the, the straps for their shields so they couldn't fight, chewed up the quivers of the bows, uh, of the arrows and the bows as well, so that they weren't able to. And they brought in the plague and it killed all these people. And that's the historical explanation. What does the Bible say? It says the angel of Yahweh came. Who's the angel of Yahweh? Jesus. It's Jesus pre-incarnate, before he became a man. So the question is this. Did Jesus literally come down when the angel of the Lord appears, he would often appear as a man? Did, did Jesus take the form of, a, of an angel of a man and come and just slaughter 185,000? Or did Jesus slaughter 185,000 by means of bringing a plague of mice through to damage all their stuff and then to bring death upon them? And the answer is, 
Either is possible. I, I genuinely have no opinion one way or the other. We're just dealing a few verses earlier with how God has brought judgment on Judah through using the Assyrians. So could God bring about judgment on the Assyrians by using mice? Absolutely. And what's interesting is that this is, this is so recorded as accepted history that um, there, is, there was in one of their temples at the time of Herodotus, there was in the temple um, a, a statue of one of their gods holding a mouse. Again, they saw the defeat as being a defeat of the gods, of God conquering. So we know, um, and I don't want to get distracted onto this, but if you, uh, in your own time, want to read 1 Samuel 5 and 6, you'll see some stuff going on with uh, Philistines, or Philistines, as you guys say. You say Philistines because you're Philistines. Um, Philistines uh, and golden mice, and that's worth looking at. So there's kind of a, there's, um, a track record here, so to speak. But it's perfectly possible to me, to get back to the point, that God used mice and the Bible just says, well, God did this. Because that's absolutely true. And the details aren't important. What's important is that God did it. So I've got no problem if there literally were mice and what have you. But let me just say this, because I'm going to err on the side of there not being mice involved. And this is why. If you were an Assyrian and you witnessed 185,000 people being killed by a single person from your perspective. If you woke up and mysteriously there are 185,000 who are slaughtered by the sword, you're not going to record that in the annals of your history when you're renowned as being a proud nation who's only had victory after victory after victory. And an explanation involving mice and plagues may well be more palatable for those who hear the story when you get home. So I leave that all with you to come to your own conclusions. Like I say, I'm happy either way, but I think I would err slightly on the side of them coming up with a story that didn't sound so bad. But before we move on, I want you to picture this. Um, Somebody may correct me here. Thank you for this. Um, Somebody may correct me here, but I think I'm right in saying, because I compared it to the towns... Uh, where I lived in England. But I think I'm right in saying that Burbank has a population of approximately 200,000. Would I be correct or is it more or less? About 100,000, is it? Okay. So uh, when I'm thinking of 200,000, I'm thinking of Burbank and Glendale combined, probably, aren't I? Okay. Get your head around that. The number of people who died was equivalent of the population of most of Burbank and Glendale. You wake up one morning and all you have in Burbank and Glendale is dead people. You go up on the hillside above Glen Oaks and everybody is dead. You go all the way along the hillside, along the, the base of the Verdugos, all the way around to Glendale. All those million dollar homes and two, three, four million dollar homes going up the hillside. Everybody's dead. You go south below the I-5 and you go into the lowlands and you go into the area where all the studios are and everything else, everybody's dead. Go out beyond Costco in that direction, up towards Silmar, everybody's dead. That's a lot of people. Proper pandemic. Crazy, isn't it? I think it's so easy to read these passages. To read these passages in the Bible... And just say, oh, 185,000. Let's just stop and think about how many people that is. That is sobering and shocking. 185,000 people. And by the way, this is, no, this is no ancient people estimating wrongly. This is not an estimation. It's 185,000. He's not saying 200,000, 150,000. He's not rounding up. He's giving, you, he's giving you a pretty accurate number of people who died. Now, if you think that number's shocking, let me give you something even more shocking. 185,000 people in the camp died. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, all of these dead bodies. Hold on a second. Didn't they all die? Oh, no, no. Only 185,000 of them died. You need to see the picture of this. That means that there were a large number of additional people who were also part of the army. So when we've got our head around how many people died 
and visually what that looks like, can we also get our heads around the fact that there's an even larger number of people? Every single resident of Burbank and Glendale, and maybe let's throw in Silmar as well. And that, at a minimum, are the number of people in the army that were coming to take down Jerusalem. Do you see why Hezekiah might have been scared? Do you see why he might have trusted in Egypt? Do you see why it was so brave of him to turn and trust in God in the midst of that situation? Do you know, there are, there are people... This is, again, I keep saying this. This is why this whole situation in our world today is, is been so revealing. Christians have forever said, oh, I'm, I'm the hero of the story. I'm the person that would stand up for rights. I'm the person that would stand by Yahweh. Oh, look at that person not trusting in Yahweh. Boo, hiss, what a bad person. We read the Bible like it's a pantomime. You have pantomimes over here, do you? We're very, they're very, very much part of our tradition in England. You know, and the kids are there in the pantomime, and then the bad guy comes on it. Boo, hiss, boo, hiss. It's all sort of black and white, right and wrong. It's very, very easy to discern. And we read the Bible and we say, oh, this person's not trusting in Yahweh. Boo, hiss, what a bad person. Because we presume that we would. Many of you will be familiar of a picture from uh, the, the realms of history that gets shared a lot these days, where you have a, a Nazi rally. And everybody in the crowd is there for this rally and they're all raising their arms in the Nazi salute. And then there's this one guy in the picture standing like this, resolutely. And the reality is, is that most Christians see things like that and think, that would be me. I'd be the one standing for Jesus. What this coronavirus has showed us is it takes the slightest, most minimal threat and Christians drop like flies. They drop like flies. They're like, well, I'm scared I might get sick. I'm scared, you know, of this and that. So, so we'll, just, we'll just forget about church for a year. Or, 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 the, or, or the, the king has told me that I must not go to church, so I won't go to church because the king's told me so. Or I will go to, only, only go to church in the way that the king allows me to go to church, when the king allows me, where the king allows me, doing what the king allows me to do when I'm there. And the knees have bowed. Hezekiah had hundreds of thousands of trained warriors surrounding his city and they had destroyed everything in their wake. And the only sensible thing to do was to give in, humanly speaking. But he looked to God. And he recognized, and it's why you need to go back and look again and again at that prayer. He recognized that God is the God of hosts. He's God of armies. He's the one above the angels. He's the one above the cherubim. He's the one above all nations. He's the one above all gods. He is the creator. He can do anything. And so Hezekiah trusted in him. And God says, okay, game time. And he comes in and he takes out the armies, leaving only enough of them alive to go and report back what has happened. And so Sennacherib, who by the way wasn't even there, we know, historically. I mentioned last time that there was another uh, attack coming from the south, from uh, Tihaka, who was a king of Ethiopia, had come up through Egypt. And so he never saw Jerusalem. He never got to besiege Jerusalem. He never got to attack Jerusalem. He departed and he returned home and he lived in his capital of Assyria that we know from the book of Jonah, Nineveh. His armies had conquered mightily, nation after nation, city after city, taking all their fruit and provisions to keep them going until they hit the next city and the next nation, like locusts destroying everything before them. And then suddenly Jesus shows up. Boom. Two more things we want to know before we go. Number one. Who is Jesus? Christmas time, we have gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Away in a manger. No crib for a bed. You know? No crying he makes. Silent night, holy night. 
You've got this whole thing where there's this gentle baby Jesus. And so people outside the church so often see Jesus as this peaceful and gentle one. And then he becomes a man, and he grows up, and he has his ministry. And then when they turn against him, he is gentle and humble and is led to the cross without giving any resistance. That's Jesus. Absolutely, that's Jesus. But when Jesus returns, he's coming in judgment. Jesus is one who brings salvation and mercy. Jesus is one who is prepared to go to the cross and die so that he would be punished in our place for our sins. The punishment that he got on the cross was a worthy punishment for us. And he was punished so that we don't have to be punished. So of course he is. But if you don't receive that offer of salvation, he is also judge. If our model of Jesus, our understanding of Jesus, does not allow for him to slaughter 185,000 in a single day, then we don't know Jesus. That's just the reality of it. And I've said this so many times, and I'll say it again and again, because I need to remind myself of it. But we live in a society today, the entirety of our society has been shut down for about a year, under the mantra of, if it saves just one life. And human life has been elevated in some situations to something that is just absolutely sanctified. At the same time, the same government is arguing for the right to kill millions of babies before they're born. At the same time, people are killing themselves. The rates of suicide are through the roof. People are dying because they can't have surgeries because everything's shut down. People are, people are losing their, their livelihoods. And, 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 and you know, the, the, we're now at a point where some people have estimated the number of deaths due to lockdown is greater than the number of deaths due to COVID. And we have this bizarre thing where we can elevate human life and have no respect for human life. And then we look at God in the Bible and we say, oh, look at all that death and all that destruction. I can't worship a God who's like that because I'm the person that would shut everything down just to save one life, you know? This kind of virtue signaling. And it's just, it's crazy. Listen, as Christians, we must not get caught up in this. When people devalue human life, like they have done in history with various genocides, with the Holocaust, the Armenian genocide and things. These things only happen because of the devaluing of humans, making humans to be subhuman. That's how the Holocaust of abortion happens, because, oh, they're not really human. And we must have no part in that. But equally, we must have no part in this elevation of, of this human life, that it somehow is the most important thing in the entire world. It really isn't. Guys, I'm going to die. And you're going to die, unless... The Lord returns first. That's it. It's going to happen. And you say, oh, well, you know, we, we, you, know you get one year more and two years more. For what? People in this life are like, you know, my 80-year-old you know, father or grandmother or whoever, they were sick with this and this and this, and then they got COVID, and it's all your fault, you people who, who won't stay in your houses and what have you. And you're like, well... But they already had this disease and this disease and this disease and they were dying. But they made them die quicker. Okay, so they got six months left. Did you understand that if you are blessed with 70 years, the, traditionally they talked about your um, three score and 10 years, the 70 years that people thought was typical for them to get, though the average I think is slightly higher now. Do you realize what that is in history? Just a breath. Your life is nothing. It's just a breath. There was a famous Scottish preacher called Robert Murray McShane, a man of the word and a man of prayer, and he died, I think, at the age of about 28 or 29. Some of you still used his Bible reading plan that he gave to people to do. He accomplished more. Read, read his biography one day if you're into biographies. He accomplished more in less than 30 years than most people accomplish in, accomplish in, in, in 100 lifetimes. The, the issue is not... See, people are, are clinging on to human life. Like, the, the loss of human life is just the absolute worst thing. And they're clinging on to human life. You know why? Because they have no idea what's to come, and they're petrified. 
And they'll say, oh, no, no, we just, we'll end up as worm food. We just want to make the most of our years, blah, blah, blah. And underneath, they're petrified. Because they know in their hearts, as they look at creation, that there is a God and he is powerful. And if there's a God and he's powerful and they gave them life, and they reject that God, there's judgment to come. And so they're scared. And if they really aren't scared, and if they really do think they're going to be worm food, then all they're doing is trying to prolong their existence and prolong their consciousness. And so their life becomes absolutely sacrosanct. And so, what does that say to us with regards to God slaughtering 185,000 people? It says this, there is nothing more important in this universe than the glory of God. We as Christians, our lives are inconsequential apart from the degree to which we glorify God. If you live your life, make millions, give to charity, invent some miraculous medicine, make a huge accomplishment, everybody knows your name, your life is wasted. Your life is only valuable to the degree to which you serve God. Maybe as you serve God, you will make millions. Maybe as you serve God, you will have, create some, invent some medicine or make some invention for human life. But glorify God in the midst of it. And if everyone does know your name, make sure you tell them about God who has saved you and can save them. Because it's all that matters. Does 185,000 dead mean that God is a nasty God? No, it means that God is trying to show us that to us to, to glory in him is the most valuable thing that we can have. And for us to resist him. This lesson stands now in history as a lesson for those who would not trust in God. Because that is more important than lives that have rejected God, that have accomplished nothing, and we're only going to continue to reject God and accomplish nothing. God gave them the privilege of life, and he took away the privilege of life, and he gets to do that without us questioning it, because he is God, and we're not. But he allowed this to happen, he did this, so that we would have the privilege of knowing that we can trust God. That no matter how great the enemy seems, no matter how desperate our situation seems, God is still on the throne. And that is how this chapter ends. 20 years later it was, we know historically, verse 38, as he was worshipping in the house of Nitrosh, his God, Adramelech, and Sharazer, his sons, struck him down with the sword. And after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Esardat, his son, reigned in his place. Sennacherib has two sons who come and kill him. And he dies at the hand of his own sons. To die at the hands of the people of Judah would have been too light a suffering, too light a judgment. It was his own sons that killed him. And they have to flee and run away, and another one of his sons then reigns in his place. It's as if they were so desperate to get rid of him, they knew that they wouldn't be able to reign, but they did it anyway, just to get rid of him. It's a pretty humiliating end for a man who took such pride in his accomplishments. One more thing I want us to see here. Chapter 37 began with a king going to worship his God. As soon as King Hezekiah, verse 1 of chapter 37, going backwards, as soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord, into the house of Yahweh. Hezekiah goes into the house of Yahweh to worship. And then in the middle of the chapter... Sennacherib says, don't trust Yahweh, don't trust Yahweh, don't trust Yahweh, don't trust Yahweh. Hezekiah goes to Yahweh and trusts in him. And where is Sennacherib when he dies? He's in his temple, worshipping his God. That is a very fitting picture for us to end with.
So what do we learn as we come away from all of this? There is one God who is creator of heaven and earth, of everything that is seen and unseen. The God who gives life to all, whether they worship him or not. The one who brings blessings on all, whether they worship him or not. The one who brings both rain and sunshine on all, whether they worship him or not. And the fact that there is a God, that he has created us, demands that we should worship him. And God does not demand our worship because he is a harsh and unpleasant God, but because that is the best thing that we could possibly do. Because the path of following God is a path of eternal joy, eternal blessing, and eternal glory. The question is this. Are we going to trust him now when we don't have that blessing, we don't have that joy, and we don't have that glory yet? Are we going to trust him when the armies surround us? Are we going to trust him when the enemy says, don't trust him, don't trust him, don't trust him, you can't trust him, don't trust him. Sennacherib was the voice piece of Satan. Don't trust God. Hezekiah trusted God and God came through. The message for us above all else is place your trust in God and watch him come through. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this astonishing story. We thank you that you allowed these events to pass and you recorded them for us, that we might learn, that we might grow, and that we might change. We pray that you bless us, Lord, as we go out now. And may we not forget what we've seen, but may we go away being people who trust in you and trust in your holy name. Amen.